I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. For so many breast cancer patients, radiation therapy can bring extraordinary benefits. But there are also challenges, including how to make radiation therapy more effective for some patients to fight off recurrence, a tumor coming back, as well as how to identify in advance which patients might not need it at all. These are among the many medical mysteries where Dr. Lori Pierce has dedicated her career. As you'll hear, she's driven to find answers by her deep drive for equitable care and access for all patients, an insatiable curiosity, and also, fortunately for the rest of us, the bones she broke as a child. Dr. Pierce is a radiation oncologist, professor, and vice provost for academic and faculty affairs at the University of Michigan. Among many other leadership roles, she also serves as president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. A national leader in breast cancer research, Dr. Pierce was previously a senior investigator at the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health, and in 1992, joined the Michigan faculty where she has focused her career primarily on the treatment of breast cancer. With more than 180 manuscripts and book chapters published, Dr. Pierce has received numerous teaching and leadership awards, and in 2018, she was elected into the National Academy of Medicine. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2003. Much of Dr. Pierce's current research focuses on recurrence, with a finer lens on something called the androgen receptor. Put simply, Dr. Pierce and colleagues are trying to determine why, after surgery and radiation therapy, breast cancer can come back, and whether blocking the androgen receptor can lead to increased radiation sensitizing. Before my conversation with Dr. Pierce, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dr. Lori Pierce. Dr. Pierce, thank you for joining. I really appreciate your time. Glad to be with you, Chris. If we could start at the highest level with radiation therapy, how important is its role in helping breast cancer patients after surgery? Oh, as you know, radiation is a very key component to the successful treatment of women with breast cancer. Um, lumpectomy and radiation is a standard treatment for patients with early stage breast cancer. And so radiation is given not only to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back in that breast, but we now have seen through a lot of trials that by doing that, you improve a patient's survival. So radiation is very important in breast conservation. And it's also important in those patients whose tumor requires them to have a mastectomy that there may be some patients who have mastectomy who need radiation as well. And that also has been shown to improve survival. So radiation is a very important component of care in early stage breast cancer. And you you mentioned one of the key and and really just very challenging areas, I'm sure. Um, I mean, so many aspects of breast cancer are frightening and emotional and, you know, frankly, sad. And one area that you just mentioned and that you do work on is around recurrence. A patient has surgery, has radiation therapy, hopes she or he has beaten cancer, and then it comes back. Uh, how, how 
devastating, how challenging is recurrence in the whole spectrum of breast cancer? Yeah, so we do everything we can to minimize the chance of recurrence. Yep. Um, we All of the trials that we do, the trials help to um, identify uh, the latest uh, advances in breast cancer to further reduce the risk of recurrence while maintaining quality of life. So that's a very important um, uh, concept. Having said that, despite the very best care, um, there are a few cancers, breast cancers, that will come back um, despite getting the appropriate care. And if you look at, at the trials that have been done that have included radiation, patients who get radiation following breast conservation, roughly about 10% of patients um, will have a recurrence in the breast. And so the vast majority of them do very, very well. Hmm. But there's about 10% that have recurrence. And that's actually been the focus of a lot of the work that I've done thanks to funding and support from BCRF. And so let's talk about um, the work that you've done across your career and, and focus in on some of the, the recent work and, and recent research that you are focusing on. Um, there are, of course, so many areas of radiation oncology that one could discuss with you, um, including some incredible work going on globally around not identifying who would benefit from radiation therapy, but rather gaining greater clarity around who wouldn't benefit and therefore doesn't need radiation therapy. And so maybe we can talk about that in this conversation as well. But I want to ask you first about what I believe is your current research. Um, what is the androgen receptor and what role might it play in resistance to radiation therapy? So, so great question. Let me give you a little bit of a background. So for for those patients who have a recurrence in their breast, we think it's probably due to resistance of to radiation, that that breast cancer cell has found a way to resist the effect of radiation. And so we've tried to focus on strategies um, to be able to lessen that resistance. And at the same time, again, thanks to BCRF, we're trying to come up with molecular markers that can predict those cancers that may be resistant to radiation. Because if you can pick out those cancers, you then can know which patients should receive some of these strategies that we're trying to come up with that can decrease the resistance to radiation. So that, that's kind of a two-prong approach. Mm -hmm. And so getting to the, the, the question that you asked, um, many years ago, when I first started working in this area of, of, of radiation resistance, I did a trial of with a, a chemotherapy agent, gemcitabine, with radiation. And I did it, and I won't uh, bore you with the details, but it was a trial that was done in patients who had had a mastectomy and had a recurrence after mastectomy and had really, really difficult disease to control. And the good news was that that trial showed that they all, all the tumors were controlled with gemcitabine and radiation. So that was a home run. What wasn't a home run is that it caused a lot of side effects. There were a lot of skin problems in patients who had that treatment. And I must say the patients that we treated, they were fine with it. I wasn't fine with it because, right. you know, there are probably ways that we can achieve the same um, outcome but have it be more tolerable to patients. And so then we started working with another class of, of drugs, something called PARP inhibitors. And again, not to bore you with the details, but PARP inhibitors, they inhibit an, an enzyme called PARP. And PARP basically helps uh, cells to repair 
DNA strand break. So DNA, of course, is the is the control. It helps to it it dictates what the cell is going to do, and uh, has has all of the genetic material in the DNA. And luckily, cancer cells have some difficulty in being able to repair damage to the DNA. And so if they need PARP and then you inhibit them from getting PARP, then they have even further difficulty repairing uh, their DNA damage. And radiation Hmm. causes DNA damage. So it's a marriage made in heaven, you know, to have radiation (laughs) and and PARP inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So so long story short, we did a lot of uh, studies um, early on to to show that it was safe. Uh, We did it in the lab first, and then we did um, a phase one study thanks to... BCRF. So the phase one study was a clinical study um, in which multiple institutions participated and in which we tested that and showed that PARP inhibitors could be safely given um, for breast cancer. And we showed that. And now, again, thanks to the work that BCRF funded, there is now a national study that is looking at radiation with or without PARP inhibitors in patients who have inflammatory breast cancer, which is a very aggressive type of breast cancer. So it just shows you when you have an idea and you have have BCRF behind you that provides funding, that you can take a concept from the lab and do the appropriate um, clinical trials to be able to bring it into the clinical arena. So that was that's the full story with PARP. And you mentioned the androgen receptor. So that's yes, a please. receptor uh, that is uh, on the cell that is, it's a hormone type receptor. And we know that uh, about 50% of triple negative breast cancers, which you know triple negatives are, are cancers yes. who don't have an estrogen receptor, don't have a progesterone receptor, and don't have a HER2 new receptor, which means our therapies that that fight ER, estrogen receptor, and progesterone receptor positive tumors in ER, and HER2 new positive tumors won't work in triple negatives because they don't have the ability to bind. Um, yeah, they, they can't catch it when it comes in. They can't catch it when it comes in. That's right. And uh, they're also a very high rate of having androgen receptors on the cells of cancers that are estrogen receptor positive. Mm-hmm. And that's very good too, because even though we have uh, incredibly effective hormonal therapies for estrogen and progesterone receptor positive cancers, not all cancers will be controlled um, with them. Not all estrogen and progesterone receptor positive cancers will be controlled. Sometimes cancers find a way to evade um uh, drugs that bind to these receptors. And so um, knowing that androgen receptors are also on these cells gives us another uh, way of being able to sense whether that can increase radiation sensitivity. And sure enough, in our preclinical, so our laboratory data, we've shown that for estrogen, for triple negative, estrogen receptor negative and triple negative cancers, that have the androgen receptor that when you give radiation, if you have a, if you have a a drug that blocks that androgen receptor and then you do radiation, that makes them more sensitive to radiation. So you get more bang for the buck, if you will, Mm. um, and more sensitization with that androgen receptor. And so we are now working toward um, trying to, to do a clinical trial. And, and the good news is that, there are a lot of drugs out there that are used in prostate cancer that we know are safe and been used for many, many years. Prostate cancers, generally, most of them are androgen, have androgen receptors also. And we know these drugs are very safe. So we can bring them into the breast cancer arena. And actually, some of them are already 
uh, use for breast cancer patients for those who have disease that has spread. Um, and so we're, we know that they're safe drugs, and we're looking at how to um, combine them safely with radiation. Can I tell you, in so many of these conversations, among the, the many things that, that amaze me in, in several of them, is how often uh, learnings, insights gained from one type of cancer get translated into another type of cancer. And so how did that actually work, the, the connection between um, the androgen receptors that are noted in prostate cancer to possibly addressing them in breast cancer? How How was how that? connection? Were androgen receptors not previously recognized in breast cancer? I kind of assumed they must have been, or was there some advance in prostate cancer? And then people like you said, well, wait a second, there's something that connects here. Just how, how was that connection made? Yeah, so a great question. So we have known for quite a while that androgen receptors were um, were on breast cancer cells. Yeah, but I would assume it, so. But but it's clearly some of the significant um, advances that have been dictate that have been uh, identified in prostate cancer that made us all take a, a look at that. And then also, there's so many similarities between prostate and breast cancer. Uh, they're both hormonally driven cancers to a large degree. Um, and then some of our uh, gene expression data from some of the trials that we did uh, earlier in, in the lab and some of the cell lines identified um, some of these antigen receptor uh, compounds as being compounds that would be very active in some of these cell lines. So it was kind of like the sun and the moon were aligned. Um, <laughs> and um, it and it, it and it also it helps that um, earlier on one of the uh, investigators who uh, was working with me, um, who was at Michigan at the time, who's now left to go to UCSF, is a prostate cancer researcher. And so, uh, so it was kind of just the right idea at the right time. Now, just picking up on what you said. Now, why in the world would anyone want to leave Michigan, especially to go out to San Francisco? Can't can't uh, that you'll have to do additional research on that problem. <laughs> um, I you know I I I agree with you, uh, but uh, I think it's worked out to be a very good move for him. Uh, I'm so, sure. So I don't sure. begrudge him that. But uh, he is uh, Dr. Felix Fang. He's an amazing researcher and yeah. gone on to do great things. Especially talking with you in the middle of winter in Ann Arbor, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there are several reasons right outside your window why uh, going to San Francisco might uh, might makes sense. So you just quickly finish up on this uh, research that you're doing. Um, I'm trying to just confirm, where are you in the research? Have you been able to start the clinical trial? Or did you say earlier that you you recognize this, you're doing some lab work, and now you're getting ready to do the clinical trials on this part? We are getting ready to do it. We're actually writing a concept, um, even as we speak. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, you'll see something in the not too distant future. <laughs> Excellent. We will keep our eyes out. Yes, please go ahead. You know, and I'll also add, I mentioned that we were doing preclinical work in the estrogen receptor positive cell lines. And interestingly, um, although the receptor negative cell lines, if you bind, if you, if you have the angina receptor inhibitor and then you do radiation, you see sensitization, we didn't see that in those that had the angina receptor who were ER, that were ER positive. So we're trying to figure out Hmm. mechanistically, what is the difference? But what's interesting, you know, you, you study one question and another question comes up, especially a question from years ago. We're looking at the sensitivity of 
uh, radiation with um, your your common estrogen receptor inhibitors like tamoxifen, hmm. the aromatase inhibitors. Um, many years ago, many, many years ago, I wrote a paper um, in Journal of Clinical Oncology. Um, long story short, it was about the timing of giving let's say tamoxifen and radiation, should you give them at the same time? Should you give, do your radiation first and your tamoxifen to follow? Because there were reasons, and I won't, I won't bore you with the details, that there were theoretical concerns that doing the two together would lessen the effectiveness of the radiation. So many places would do the radiation first and then start the hormonal therapy. Well, now that we're into the studying of, of, of angiogen receptors, ER receptors, why do we see sensitization? Why don't we see sensitization? We've started to run some, some tests and lab tests, and we're actually seeing that you get sensitization just by having the hormonal therapy at the same time as radiation. Hmm. And um, this is also something that's, and actually this is the subject of a couple of trials that are currently ongoing about the sequencing of hormonal therapy and radiation. But this, this is something that coupled with the laboratory data and depending upon how the clinical data comes out will be something very fundamentally important potentially to cancer patients who, who have ER positive cancer who get radiation and, and how best to sequence these therapies. So it's just interesting. This again, the paper I wrote was in 2005, and so now we've come around from the clinical paper to the laboratory exercise, and uh, actually finding that there may be sensitization just from using our very um, widely, you know, utilized hormonal therapies with radiation. Yes, that 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 is wonderful, and it is a terrific insight how questions can then lead to additional questions and to additional questions. And uh, I am sure we, we could have a whole conversation on that, I'm sure. And I would imagine um, that's part of the fuel of what keeps people like you, you know, going with the energy and pace that you keep up um, every day. It, it's got to be that that curiosity. It, it um, is because because these are these are basic clinical questions. These are questions that our patients need answers to. Mm-hmm. And, and those that's the most important incentive for what we do. It has to be relevant and it has to be something that will favorably alter a patient's course. So for sure. Were you always curious? Were you a curious kid? Uh, extremely, <laughs> extremely, <laughs> always, always. I have a couple of broken bones when I was a kid to go for it. I was always getting into things. Yeah. I, I'm getting that. I'm getting that sense about you. Yeah. So you, you found out your limits the hard way, but uh, for, fortunately, at least uh, as a scientist researcher, uh, medical professional, no, no limits yet that, that we know of. None, none that we'll talk about at least right now. Um, <laughs> I, b- before we move on, because I want to ask you a little bit about your work, um, with ASCO, uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology. And, uh, you don't need me to tell you that you were the president there. Um, but you kind of, uh, reacted earlier when I mentioned the importance of, um, some of the work going on globally around gaining greater clarity of who wouldn't benefit and therefore doesn't need radiation therapy. Um, what's the status of that work generally? Um, and wh- why does that excite you so much? So for any type of therapy for breast cancer or any type of cancers, there are potential positives. There are also negatives. You, you don't want to treat, offer treatment to a patient who really doesn't need it. And so it's important to be able to discern those characteristics about a specific cancer that tell you 
um, whether that patient needs treatment or not. It's the ultimate individual individualizing treatment to know which patients uh, don't need treatment. And so, um, but the other side of the coin is you have to do this very carefully, uh, right? Because you, there have been many advances to the use of radiation. And just like I said, we know that radiation not only reduces the risk of, of recurrence, but also improves survival. So it has to be very, very carefully studied. Similar to medical oncology, having oncotype, being able to, through a series of trials, be able to discern those patients who would do well in the absence of chemotherapy. Well, we're doing the same kinds of things with radiation, and, and there are currently trials. So the short answer to your question is the trials are currently ongoing. Uh, looking at selected patients, or patients who have specific um, aspects of their cancers that are, and I'm doing air quotes here, that are favorable. So those that are certainly estrogen receptor positive, um, those who are small tumors, um, patients who may be older as opposed to, you know, 35-year-old uh, patients with cancer, and trying to then um, see within that selected group whether they would do equally well um, without radiation. So the trials are currently ongoing, very important studies, and hopefully in the next uh, two to four years, we'll start to have some meaningful data from those trials. Excellent. Look forward to that. Um, I want to talk to you about all the free time that you clearly have, because with nothing, not enough on your plate, uh, you decided, well, why don't I add a little role like uh, ASCO president? with all the extra time that you had. Was that your thinking in, in taking that on? <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, so in that role, uh, what does the, the theme equity, every patient, every day, everywhere mean? So, yes, I have the honor to be ASCO president. Um and when you're voted uh, to be president, the first year you're actually president-elect. And during that year, you get to select the theme that you want to um, to focus on during your year as presidency. And, and you just name the theme, equity every day, everywhere, every patient, every day, everywhere. Um, this is so important to me. Uh, uh, it's important to all of us as clinicians. Um, I am African-American, um, and in, for just about every endpoint, oh gosh, almost every endpoint that you can look at, um, people of color um, do less well. And cancer is no exception. Um, and, and, and the reasons are, are so complicated. You know, if this were a slideshow, I have a, a word cloud where I have all of these terms that are... Um, that have to be considered when you think about equity. Um, hmm. And it, it's such a simple word, but it seems to be so complicated to achieve. Um, and certainly ASCO, by nature of what ASCO does, ASCO is, is ever since ASCO was created, um, it has focused on equity of care. It's just, it's, it's what it's all about. And so there were a lot of initiatives that ASCO already uh, were, um, were doing full force in terms of equity. And some of them included um, some of the uh, Young Investigator Awards, Career Development Awards, focusing on health disparities in which BCRF has provided funding for multiple of these grants. So, so this has been something that ASCO has been doing. But for my year, I 
added additional initiatives to ASCO's portfolio because this is so important. I mean, care has to be given equitably to all. It shouldn't make a difference of their financial situation, shouldn't make a difference of their age, shouldn't make a difference of if they're in a rural community or inner city, shouldn't make a difference um, what color they are. Everyone is entitled to high quality care. And um, so there, there are many initiatives that ASCO has and new initiatives to focus on equity of care. And as I read some of what you've written and said about this, um, it's also about directly impacting outcomes, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And, and it's, it's, yes, the, the short answer to that question is absolutely yes. Um, and it's, you can look at it from so many different perspectives. How do you directly affect outcomes? You affect outcomes by the therapies you give. You affect outcomes by the workup uh, to be able to adequately stage patients. You affect um, outcomes by some of the social determinants of health that, that really impact people on every level. Uh, you affect uh, outcomes by survivorship issues, prevention issues, modifiable risk factors, all of those components affect the outcomes of our patients. Yeah, I, I read, I don't know exactly where I read this that you said, but it gets to exactly what you were saying, um, that, that some of the disparities are due to social determinants of health, which you just mentioned. Um, I'm quoting you here, like where people live, their level of, level of education, where they work, their financial resources. And it's hard for us to directly impact those, but we can impact how, they, how we give care and that it is equitable. And that's just, that struck me because it, it has such a, an awareness, obviously, about the entire range of social determinants of health. Um, obviously, you would love to solve all of those, um, and maybe in due time you will, uh, but you make very clear what you and your role, what doctors, researchers, scientists, um, clinicians, caregivers can directly impact right now, and that's the care. The care, that, that's, that's correct. You can also advocate for your patients, you know, with local um, members of, of legislatures and, and state and, and national. Um, you can, we, we need to be able to understand cancer through the lens of our patients um, and what are the barriers that they see. Um, we have all of these incredible therapies, um, but if there are barriers that prevent a patient from receiving it, then all those therapies are for naught. So it, it's important that as caregivers, we actually spend some time asking questions to understand um, what are the, the barriers to a patient receiving the care that we recommend? So one of the, the initiatives that we have this year is to a, um, create a social determinants of health uh, set of podcasts and videos. And, and uh, it, it will educate, it's really geared primarily for our, for our um, fellows and early career oncologists, because they're our, our leaders for tomorrow, um, to really understand what the social determinants of health are. Hmm. And there's one episode that actually is, is we do, we're doing one a month and it's being taped um, this month is how to take a social determinants of health history. Hmm. It, it's so important to find out if Mrs. Jones doesn't have transportation, 
Mm-hmm. She can't mm-hmm. come in for a radiation. She can't mm-hmm. come in for a chemotherapy. Uh, Mrs. Jones has to work and can't get time off from work. So, so they're just they're things that we're all taught in medical school how to do an H and P, how to do an H and P. But we need to kind of also how to to solicit in our history taking those barriers uh, and and that knowledge will help us in some cases we can't do it all but in some cases will help us to be able to be able to help our patients better does that make sense that makes a ton of sense that's terrific uh would look forward to uh getting to learn more about that i know you've mentioned it a couple of times but broadly speaking what role has bcrf played in your research so bcrf it's just a special organization. Um, you know, it brings together breast cancer researchers who are doing um, incredible work for to be able to cure breast cancer, but it brings them together. Um, and it has meetings. It has ways that we can interact with one another. And we learn from one another and we collaborate. BCRF establishes this amazing collaboration of researchers. You know, some of the cell lines that we used for some of the work, as I talked about earlier, were from other BCRF investigators. Um, And then a few years back, um, some of the work I was doing then, which is different from what we talked about, was looking at radiation in women who have a BRCA1 and 2, 1 or 2 mutation. And it involved bringing together a collaboration and network of investigators and in order to have enough numbers of patients to be able to make some uh, clinically relevant observations. And I was able to connect with other uh, BCRF researchers to be able to establish these um, collaborations. And this work, even though it was a few years ago, is still being quoted. I was just um, uh, helped to co-lead the ASCO-ASTRO-SSO guideline on hereditary breast cancer. And a lot of the work for the radiation part was from the work that I had done with this collaboration. So Hmm. BCRF essentially creates a family of breast cancer researchers. And it's just... um, it's just an honor to be able to be in that family and to be able to learn from others and to collaborate. If I could, uh, mindful of time, close out this conversation with my own question on history. How did you get into this? I mean, going back for you, was it always science? Was it always research? Did you ever think perhaps you'd be a fiction novelist or world-class skier? I, I will confess, I have read about a Doc Weaver in a Husky, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing the town right. I did <laughs> North Carolina. So, what, what was uh, what was Doc Weaver about? Yeah, so in, I'll just summarize it. And I have a lot of family uh, in a small town called a Husky, um, and so in the summers I would spend quite a bit of time there. And you know, in the '60s, um, you'd come to a Husky and the care was segregated. I mean, um, most of the people of color got their care, received their care from a um, physician of color. And his name was Dr. Weaver. And he was wonderful. He was absolutely wonderful. Um, and I, I noticed that. Uh, I noticed how he had the answers, how he was the doctor for everyone, how everyone looked up to him, how everyone um, realized just how special he was. And that, you know, certain things as you're, when you're a kid stick with you. Um, mm. And that stuck with me. Um, yeah. And um, that certainly was one of the seeds that um, led me to where I am today. And, and so had you decided, I mean, was it pretty clear? Were you science minded? 
I was always science and math minded. I was always very inquisitive, which you stumbled upon <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and, um, and as I mentioned earlier, yeah, because I was so inquisitive and it was pretty thin, um, I broke a couple of bones um, along the way. So I ended up getting good x-rays and, and, and all. And, and uh, I was fascinated by x-rays absolutely fascinated by x-rays to the point that I asked so many questions to the x-ray techs that they would go get the radiologist to answer my questions. The radiologist went over the films with me and I, I just thought that was just the coolest thing. And I decided then I wanted to be a radiologist. Um, and it didn't change. That didn't change until I got to medical school and, uh, I won't worry the details, but while in medical school, I realized just how much I love working with patients and radiologists are wonderful, but they don't have that close of an interaction with the patients that they um, take films of. And I found radiation oncology. And so that gave me the x-rays. It gave me the chance to work with patients. It gave me the chance to, to do clinical research. And um, it's been a, it's just been a wonderful career. Well, I sure hope you don't take this the wrong way, but the rest of us are so glad that you broke bones. <laughs> That's just, that's excellent for the rest of us. Thank you. That's Doctor, how it all happened. That's how it all happened. Dr. Pierce, thank you so much um, for your time and, and obviously for the work that you do every day for patients. So good to talk to you, Chris. So good to be able to talk about the work that we're doing and hopefully it will resonate with some of the patients who hear this. That was my conversation with Dr. Lori Pierce. My thanks to Dr. Pierce for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.